0: escape pod 96 march 8, 2007 today's story job qualifications by kevin j anderson
1: hello and welcome to escape pod i'm steve ely I want to use this intro to talk about feedback again. Specifically, the comments on Robert Silverberg's time travel love story from Escape Pod 93, now plus N, now minus N. I'm putting it up front because many of the comments were very consistent, and it got me thinking about how science fiction readership has changed. There are story spoilers ahead, so if you haven't listened yet, now's a good time. First off, I think the story was very well received on style and concept. Evo Terra had the most positive comment. I first read this story sometime around 1990, and it crosses my mind at least once a month. Since I can't think of another short story where I have this relationship, you might imagine what a joy it was to hear it on Escape Pod. We got a few people saying it was their favorite Escape Pod story so far, thanks to all of you. Russ pointed out the amusing coincidence that the character's stock-picking problems in the story, which was set in October 1987 happened to coincide perfectly with Black Monday, which was the second biggest drop in stock market history. And several commenters said it was refreshing to have a happy ending here, that the woman did not, as they expected, turn out to be an agent with the SEC or something. We also got a few people who hated it, too much exposition or the characters weren't believable, etc. More than that, though, we had many, many people who said they enjoyed it except for the logic holes. In particular, that the entire plot revolved around our hero's unwillingness to spend an hour away from his love. As one lower light said, Why oh why can't he find some way to get more than 20 feet away from this woman? I mean, come on, this isn't Yoko Ono we're talking about here. While Kayla agreed, he said, It's perilously close to the pet peeve that the characters must be stupid for the plot to work. And having the richest man in the world whine about not being able to make more money isn't the best way to earn my sympathy. Other issues were brought up too, but the hour-a-day-away thing seemed to be the most common. I actually agree with all of these objections. In fact, I noticed many of the same things myself. But I felt the story was fun enough that I bought it anyway, and I don't regret it now. A few people noted that the story was written in the early 1970s, and it was a different time for the genre, and I think that's a very good point. I'm not going to try to defend a claim that SF was any less logically rigorous then, If anything, the hard SF writers were harder. But the expectations of the field's readers have continued to change over the years. I think for a lot of readers, the fascination with ideas for the sake of ideas is over now. And with so much of our entertainment becoming more complex, people set their standards for sophistication higher and higher. As Biscuit said in our forums, Romeo and Juliet would never cut it if it was original in 2007. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a bad thing. Smarter, more discriminating audiences are good for everyone. I love it when smart work gets rewarded. But at the same time, I do hope we don't entirely give up our sense of fun. I have known plenty of books and movies with plot holes big enough to drive a truck through, but at the time they carried me away enough that I didn't notice. Whether this particular story did or didn't do that for you is a personal matter. What I hope is that, for all of us, with a good enough story, it remains possible. That said here's a story that's definitely modern and timely. We present Job Qualifications by Kevin J. Anderson. Mr. Anderson lives in Colorado and is the author or co-author of scores of novels in the Dune, Star Wars, and other universes, as well as his own Saga of Seven Sons and many other original works. His novel Hunters of Dune is out in stores now, and in June he's coming out with a sequel to A.E. Van Vogt's classic novel Slan, called Slan Hunters. This story appeared in the anthology Future Shocks, edited by Lou Anders. The story is read for us by Steve Anderson, no relation, a freelance actor and writer whose work can be found at sgacreative.com. So tell the speechwriters to wrap up, you're needed in wardrobe. It's story time.
0: Job Qualifications by Kevin J. Anderson Candidate Berthold Ossiquin the original... Never made a move without being advised or cautioned by his army of pollsters, etiquette consultants, and style experts. Whether in public or in the privacy of his family estate, his every gesture and utterance was monitored. The avid media waited for Bertold to make any sort of mistake. Elections would be held soon, and he must be absolutely perfect if he wanted to become the next Grand Chancellor of the United Cultures of Earth. According to surveys, he did have a slight lead over his opponent, though not enough to inspire complete confidence. Berthold sat in an overstuffed chair that vibrated soothingly to calm him as he prepared to give a dramatic and insightful speech that his team had scripted for him. From rehearsing the speech before test audiences, the candidate knew where to modulate his voice and which points to emphasize in order to guarantee the strongest emotional impact. Two young women, one in each hand, worked vigorously to trim his cuticles, file his nails, and give him that perfectly manicured appearance. A stylist worked with his bronze-brown hair and fixed every strand into place. Dieticians made careful recommendations about the foods Bertold should eat. Style experts met for at least an hour every evening to plan the candidate's wardrobe for the following day. No one could ever find fault with his appearance. His stomach ached from eating too large and too rich a meal the night before, against the advice of his dieticians. He reminded himself to be careful with his facial expressions today, since a twinge of indigestion might show up as an inexplicable frown. Bertold glanced up from the speech notes, looking at his chief advisor who waited beside him. "'How are the others coming, Mr. Rana?' Rana nodded. "'Precisely on schedule, sir. The others will be ready when they become necessary for your campaign.' The lash struck with a bite of electrical current that produced a fiery sting. Though the high-tech whip caused no actual harm, Berthold 12 felt as if his skin had been flayed. More misery, the same as the day before, and the day before that. Fingernails cracked and bleeding, he stumbled under the heavy rock he carried while the hot sun pounded down. He could smell rock dust, and his own sweat heard the impatient shouts of the guards and the groans of other slave prisoners. His mind ached, and Bertol 12 drove back the myriad shouted questions that hammered through his head. Why was he here? What had he done? The injustice burned like acid within him. Why do I deserve this? Up and down the winding, jagged canyon, layered limestone walls crumbled like broken knives. Work teams moved sluggishly, carting loads of quarried stone. Berthold 12 knew the machinery existed to do this sort of work. Robots and automated conveyors could have taken away the rock. But this labor site wasn't about efficiency. It was about misery and punishment. When the electrical whip snapped again across his shoulder blades, Berthold 12 dropped the rock and collapsed to his knees. The guard's hover platform came closer and the armored man loomed over him. Beneath the polarized helmet, Berthold 12 could see only the guard's chin and a smile that showed square white teeth. I can keep whipping you all day if that's what you want, prisoner. Please, I'm working as hard as I can. His throat was raw, his body a living mass of aches. I don't even know why I'm here. I don't remember anything but this. (laughs) Perhaps you committed the crime of amnesia. The guard chuckled at his joke, then threatened with the electrical whip again. If your crime was bad enough that you blocked all memory of it from your head, then you probably don't want to remember. Berthold 12 used his reserves of energy just to get back to his feet. He picked up the heavy limestone slab before the guard could lash him again. He could not recall any day that hadn't been this litany of labor and torture. He didn't know when this awful part of his life would end. The greasy smells and comfortable bustle of the retro diner always made him feel at home. Berthold Six stood by the heat lamps, adjusted his stained white apron, and pulled out a few guest checks. He quickly added up the totals, while the short-order cook slapped extravagant, nostalgic breakfasts onto warm plates and set them on a shelf. Low-carb pancakes and waffles, minimal cholesterol eggs, reduced fat bacon and sausage— such dietary innovations have made the traditional American breakfast into something that trendy customers could once again consume with great gusto. The Retro Diner, modeled after popular eating establishments of the mid-20th century, had silver and chrome fittings, stools and booths upholstered with red hide, table surfaces covered with speckled formica, the menu featured recreations of classic products many patrons got into the spirit by dressing up in old-fashioned costumes and smoking noncarcinogenic cigarettes the place had a neighborly feel to it a celebration of more innocent times bertold 6 felt right at home he wouldn't have wanted any other job carrying his loaded tray bertold 6 made a slight detour to snag the pot of coffee weak bitter regular coffee not one of the dramatically potent gourmet blends Here comes some morning cheer for you and your family, Eddie. Hey, Bert, said the jolly old man, lounging back in his usual booth. The waitresses around here are getting uglier every day. Yeah, but the waiters are certainly looking fine. As the man grinned at the good-natured response, Berthold Six delivered a stack of strawberry pancakes topped with a swirl of whipped cream, which looked like the eruption of a fruity volcano. He gave a cherry cola to the fresh-faced boy who sat next to his grandfather, refilled coffee cups around the room, then scooped dirty dishes from an unoccupied table into a bus tub. Berthold Six enjoyed working with regular folks. He liked serving people. He didn't earn much money, but enough to get by. Though he wished some of his customers wouldn't tip like it was still 1953. He'd had a busy shift today, and tomorrow was his day off. Since he had no major plans, he thought he'd spend time with a few friends, talking, drinking beer, maybe watching sports or playing a game or two. Berthold Six wasn't unduly stressed with the nonsense of unattainable goals or unrealistic ambitions. He was just an everyday guy, working an everyday job. A simple life. Order up, the cook called with a clatter of dishes as he set the next breakfast under the heat lamps. Before he was escorted off to a glamorous banquet, Candidate Berthold received Mr. Rana in his dressing chambers. The chief advisor brought documents for him to approve and sign. This will take only a few moments, sir. Bertold glanced down at the papers, shuffling from document to document. Each one needs a signature. Yes? Have they all been read for me? Yes, and all necessary changes have been made. And do I agree with everything they say? The statements are very much in line with your platform, sir. Rana formed a paternal smile. You are, however, welcome to read any of them you like. In fact, I encourage it. The experience will be valuable for you. Candidate Bertold gave a dismissive wave. That won't be necessary... I'm already tired of the incessant paperwork, and I haven't even been elected yet. He laboriously began to sign each one. I'll have plenty of time to learn after I get into office. His head felt as if it would explode from so much information, but his passion for the material did not wane. His brain swelled with facts until all the bones of his skull, 22 bones in all, 14 facial bones, 8 cranial bones, seemed to pry apart. For years, Berthold, 17, had been studying all aspects of medicine, from surgery to physical therapy to microbiology to anti-aging research. Even with proven teaching aids and somatic memorization devices, he struggled to remember the components of the human body and all the diseases and maladies that could afflict it. He would be taking his exams in three days. His future depended on his performance for those vital hours. Not that he had any doubts. He had been born for this, Prospect was daunting, but he always liked challenges. Upon first entering medical school, Berthold 17 made up his mind to become one of the best doctors ever. The higher the hurdles, the more effort he put into meeting them. He took great satisfaction in a reward that he'd earned. He had painted his own finish line and would never look back over his shoulder until he had crossed it. Good enough was not in his vocabulary. Berthold 17 hit the books again, studying, studying. It would be a long night. Meanwhile, in another campus library, in another state, Berthold 18 sat surrounded by legal tomes, equally convinced that he would pass the upcoming bar exam with flying colors. They were all dying of Ebola X. Berthold 3 could do nothing to save the afflicted villagers, but he forced himself to remain at their sides and comfort the men, women, and children in their final hours. He prayed with them, he listened to them, he comforted them. Not being a doctor, he was unable to do anything else. And even the doctors couldn't do much. Ebola X, a particularly virulent strain of the hemorrhagic plague, had been genetically engineered by a brutal African warlord who, upon being deposed, had unleashed it among his own population. As if their lives weren't already difficult enough, Berthold III thought. The villagers had impure drinking water, no electricity, no schools, no sanitation— Thanks to a persistent drought, almost certainly caused by the government and its short-sighted agricultural policies, the locals had lived on the edge of starvation for years. Immune systems and physical strength were at their nadir. When the Ebola X arrived, it mowed down the village population as easily as if it were a jeep full of machine-gun-bearing soldiers. The thought of their situation tugged at his heartstrings. How could a person hold so much pain? The hot and stifling hospital tent reeked with the stench of sweat, vomited blood, and death. Berthold III still heard every gasp, every moan, every death rattle. He sat quietly on a wooden stool, looking at the strained, pain-puckered face of a young mother. He read soothing passages aloud from the Bible, but he didn't think she could hear him or even understand the flowery English words but he stayed with her anyway, changing the moist rag from her forehead, holding her shoulders when she needed to roll over and vomit. The woman seemed to know she was dying. She had communicated with him about her three children, and Bertold III promised to look after them. He brushed her wiry hair, cooling her forehead again. He didn't have the heart to tell her that the children had died two days earlier. Exhausted medics moved around him like zombies. They had too little medicine, certainly nothing effective against this epidemic. Berthold III tried to take as much busywork from the doctors as possible. He felt a calling to do his part, any part, so long as he helped these people. He had some first aid training, but the bulk of his schooling had prepared him to be a missionary, not a medic. Perhaps if he'd known ahead of time, Bertold III would have learned more practical skills. Even so, he wouldn't have turned from this obligation. In his heart, he wanted to be here, wishing only that he could ease their suffering more effectively." The dying woman reached out, her hand extended upward as if trying to grasp the sky. Berthold III took it in his own hand, folding his palms around hers and pressing her clenched fist against his chest so that she could feel the beating of his heart. She breathed twice more, arched her back, and then died. Bertold III said a calm prayer over her, then stood. He had no time to rest, no time to grieve. He dragged his wooden stool over to the cot of the next patient. Red tape. Bureaucracy. Incomprehensible forms in triplicate. Revisions to revisions to procedures that had already been revised repeatedly. Job. Security. Bertolt 10 could not pretend his job was interesting, nor could he console himself with the thought that it was necessary but it was a career, and he was good at it. Few people were so careful or detail-oriented. Some of his co-workers called him anal retentive. He sat in a small cubicle like thousands of others in this governmental office building for the United Cultures of Earth. Bertold Ten processed forms, input data, tracked regulations, and submitted comments and rebuttals to his counterparts in rival departments of the government in other cities around the world. He was content to be sifting through paperwork in his own tiny cog and a single component of the sprawling wheels of government. It was good to have an understanding of how the details worked, instead of just the big picture which the career politicians saw. Berthold 10 had no aspirations of running for office or being a great leader. He kept his sights on a shorter-term desire for an increase in pay grade. And he was sure to get it with only a few more years of diligent service. When the urgent communique appeared in his inbox, Berthold 10 didn't at first pay special attention. Urgent matters went into a separate stack, and he generally made an effort to take care of them first. But when he noticed that this message was addressed to him personally from the office of the candidate, he read it with puzzlement, then amazement. He was summoned to the candidate's mansion at a specified time and date, Bertold 10 looked around his drab cubicle at the never-changing piles of never-changing work. He didn't know what all this was about, and the letter did not explain. Official escorts would arrive to escort him. He smiled. At last, his life was about to become more interesting. With Mr. Rana beside him to operate the apparatus, Candidate Bertold cradled the head of the final clone in his lap, the man still twitched and struggled. Bertold had forgotten which number this was, but the clutching fingers could not remove the electrodes and transmitters pasted onto his temples and forehead. "'I'm glad this is the last one,' the candidate said. "'It's been an exhausting day.' One of the clones had struggled violently when the guards brought him in, forcing them to break his forearm. The snapped ulna—ah, the medical knowledge was coming in useful already. Had been unforeseen, but not necessarily a bad thing.' In his pampered life, Candidate Berthold had never experienced a broken bone. Now, after absorbing the clone's experience, he knew what it felt like. Memories and thoughts continued to drain out of the last clone's mind, like arterial blood spurting from a slashed throat. The Candidate held his duplicate's shoulders, felt everything surge into his own brain. What a difficult and painful life this one had lived. But the experience has certainly built character, giving him a firm moral foundation and impeccable resolve. It will be an excellent addition to Berthold's repertoire. Each detail made him more electable. Since worldwide leaders guided so many diverse people, the citizens of the United Cultures of Earth demanded more and more from their rulers. To win a worldwide election, a candidate needed to demonstrate empathy for a multitude of different tiers of voters from all walks of life. He had to be both an outsider and an insider. He had to understand privilege to grasp the overall landscape of the government as well as the minutiae of how the bureaucracy worked. He was expected to have a passion for helping people, a genuine heart for the common man, and a rapport with celebrities and captains of industry. Such expectations were simply impossible for a single human being to meet. Fortunately, thanks to the mental parody of clones, men such as Berthold Assequin, and quite certainly all of his opponents, could live many diverse lives in parallel. The clones were turned loose in various situations where they gathered real-life experiences that went far beyond anything Candidate Berthold could have learned from teachers or books. The last clone spasmed again, and his face fell completely slack, his mouth hung slightly open, his eyelids fluttered but remained closed, a few final desperate thoughts trickled into Berthold's mind. (sighs) Ah, With a satisfied sigh, he peeled off the transmitter electrodes and motioned for the guards to carry away the limp body. All eighteen of the clones were now vegetables, empty husks wrung dry of every thought and experience. The comatose bodies would be quietly euthanized, and a newly enriched candidate would emerge for the final debates before the elections. Berthold stood from his chair, completely well-rounded now, full of vicarious memories, tragic events, and pleasant recollections. The chief advisor looked into Berthold's eyes with obvious pride. Are you ready, Mr. Candidate? Berthold smiled. Yes, I have all the background I could possibly need to rule the world. Though once I get into office, we may decide to continue my education in this manner. Are there more clones? We can always make more, sir. There's no substitute for experience. Berthold stretched his arms and took a deep breath, feeling like a true leader at last. He issued a sharp command to his staff. Now, let's go win this election!
1: And that was our story. I think this one is especially disturbing if you look at today's leaders and ask yourself, which one would you want 18 of, even briefly? Here's a promo for a cool opportunity from a podcast about the best show in the verse. Hello, Firefly fans. This is Eric and Miranda from the Firefly Talk Podcast, and we'd like to invite you to come visit our show. You'll find all sorts
0: of Firefly goodies in every episode, including articles about the verse, the latest Firefly news, fan fiction reviews, forum recaps, and interviews with our big damn heroes.
1: Such as Greg Edmondson, we chatted with him a few days ago about the backup bash. You can hear that in our latest episode.
0: And it's not too late to enter our second Serenity Movie Prop Giveaway Contest. Send us your thoughts about Firefly in the form of a short article and you could win one of nine Serenity Props or Replicas, including a Metal Reaver Sword used in the movie, or a Rare
1: Artist's Proof of Mal's Pistol, among many other awesome prizes. So come pay us a visit at FireflyTalk.com and we'll have ourselves a fine palaver without the wood alcohol filled with everything wonderful about the finest space-western, romance, action-comedy, drama-horror show ever made. See you there. Stay shiny! For those who haven't been following our Flash Fiction Contest on the Escape Pod forums, it's almost done, and you've still got a couple of days to vote in the final round for your favorite 300-word stories. It's a really incredible group, And I can tell you for sure we're going to be running more than just the top three. If you want to see what you're missing, now's your chance. Voting ends Saturday evening, March 10th. The forums are at forum.escapeartist.info. Remember, you do need to register to read the stories. And now I've got a break form for a personal request. I mentioned that last year, one of the better things to happen for Escape Pod was that I picked up some software contracting work that allowed me to work from home and keep my schedule flexible enough to do everything that needed to be done to build up Escape Pod and Pseudopod and PodDisk, etc. That contract is on hiatus right now, so in order to keep everything going at full steam, I'm looking for some more contract work in web software development, Windows development, or podcast production. My resume is solid, I do good work independently or in small teams, and I have over a decade of consulting experience, including project management and software analysis and design. I know there are one or two technology people who listen to this, so if you know of any problems that need solving, please send me an email at editor at escapepod.org. I'd be happy to have a conversation. I feel a little bit awkward just asking this. It's not my intention to use this podcast for a purely personal gain but keeping me working does help Escape Pod, so I hope you don't mind my asking this once. We've got some other cool stuff going on with Escape Pod and marketing and some other projects, but I'll save that for the next Metacast, which will be coming up... well, the official date is soon. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors and our authors' army of clones, Come on, how else do you think Kevin J. Anderson writes so fast? For the best in audio horror, check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. That's P-S-E-U-D-O, pod.org. And for our stories in CD format, visit poddisc.com. If you want to hear me rant about podcasting topics, also check out PodHoles, hosted by myself and Mike Meningay, at podholes.com. My music is by permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.org. Our closing quotation this week comes from the Greek statesman Pericles, who said, Just because you don't take an interest in politics does not mean politics won't take an interest in you. We'll see you next week. Meanwhile, have fun.